This weekend, President Obama will travel to India, and it comes at a time of heightened tensions in the region. Two of the major powers, India and Pakistan, have been feuding for decades, and ending that conflict has become a centerpiece of the president's foreign policy. Joining me now to discuss the prospects for a comprehensive peace deal between India and Pakistan, no matter how elusive that may be, and what it could mean for U.S. interests in Afghanistan, are is Mira Kamdar. She is a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute and an associate fellow at the Asia Society. I'm very pleased to welcome her to our show for today's second underreported segment. Hello. Hey, Leonard. Nice to be with you. The United States has a close economic relationship with India, a close security relationship with Pakistan, and thousands of troops stationed in Afghanistan. Does the U.S. need some kind of peace deal here? Well, it would certainly be a huge help to U.S. interests, not to mention to the people of the region if there were a comprehensive peace settlement. But as you suggested in your intro, it remains quite elusive. It's one of the stumbling blocks that both Pakistan and India have been trying to have more influence in Afghanistan? It absolutely is. Pakistan is very concerned about having India increase its presence in an area that it has always considered to be its fallback position should India invade from the other side of its borders. And India is not keen at all on having Pakistan, uh, you know, further intensify its influence in Afghanistan, not to mention China. Uh, take a larger role in Afghanistan. Uh, And India is quite concerned that the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, whenever that might occur, would leave a kind of a vacuum that would not be in its interest. Is the U.S. the only country with the leverage to craft a deal between these two countries? I don't think the U.S. has leverage to craft a deal. The U.S. can have, you know, back uh, corridor kind of behind-the-scenes uh, conversations. It can, it can help. It has already for years tried to uh, broker peace between India and Pakistan. Um, both countries have um, taken different positions about that. Pakistan has often taken the position that it welcomed an active, even a formal U.S. role. India has usually taken the position that, uh, thank you very much, we'll solve this between ourselves. There's no overt role the U.S. could take, but certainly behind the scenes, um, there will be discussion of how to move something forward. Now, why would India prefer not to have the U.S. involved? Do they think that we would side with Pakistan? No, I think it's more of a question of national sovereignty and India feeling that it's quite mature enough to handle um, this kind of thing on its own. And while it might welcome a positive role from the U.S., which it would perhaps see in in the U.S. dealing with some of the uh, problems that India sees in Pakistan and and sees the U.S. support for Pakistan. You know, India was not thrilled with this latest $2 billion aid package that we're giving Pakistan, et cetera. Um, You know, that kind of that kind of a role for the U.S. India would welcome, but as far as actually, uh, you know, dictating terms or anything like that, that would be absolutely out of the question. Well, we've also sold fighter jets to India. Have any of these things uh, bought us anything? more than fighter jets to India, and and, uh, I'm here to tell you now that one of the big outcomes of Obama's visit over this weekend will be a list of major military contract deals with India. Uh, India is the world's largest purchaser of arms, and we are the largest vendor to India. Well, you know, uh, there hasn't been uh, an actual nuclear confrontation between the two countries. I think that's something we can all be really happy about. Uh, 
out. But no, I mean, uh, a lasting peace just still remains very elusive. The president is traveling with something like 200 CEOs, isn't he? He is. The largest business delegation uh, to visit India, uh, you know, on the margins of a presidential visit. Uh, There are 20 CEOs in the India-U.S. CEO Forum, but uh, tagging along will be a a total of 200 CEOs and business leaders who will be convening in Mumbai. And, uh, you know, this trip is really, frankly, from my point of view, much more or at least as much about business as it is about strategy. Now, is, is India doing more business with the United States? states than it's doing with its neighbor, Pakistan? <laughs> much, much, much more. Now, uh, why would Pakistan, that be? Because, uh, you know, it just, it just seems so economically advantageous to be able to go across the borders, to, although right now the borders are fortified with razor wire <laughs> and sandbag bunkers. Yeah, which makes it a little hard. Um, no, I mean, you're right. It's absurd. In fact, uh, Indian goods and Pakistani goods normally have to transit through Dubai <laughs> to get, you know, from one country to another. There's really very little direct trade. And this would certainly be a very positive outcome to a peace deal. So is this visit really about stimulating the U.S. economy? A big part of this visit is, is about stimulating the U.S. economy. Uh, the Obama administration, various spokespeople in the last uh, few days have been uh, putting out the message that one of the priorities of the president's visit is to increase U.S. exports to India as a means of stimulating employment in the United States. There's also been talk that India, with its 1.2 billion population and its economy growing at close to 9 percent, uh, uh, you know, a percentage that would be unimaginable to us right now, uh, it's that it's time for India to shoulder a little more of the burden uh, and that the U.S. consumer can't be, you know, the only, the only uh, engine of global economic growth anymore. Well, as you point out, India's economic development has accelerated over the past decade, but we haven't seen a similar transformation in Pakistan, and the U.S. has tried to make economic development in Pakistan a priority. Uh, I would assume that opening the border uh, with India might uh, do more than an aid package, but I was surprised that he's going to India, but he's not stopping at Islamabad. Uh, no, this is part of, well, first of all, I do want to say that Pakistan's economy has actually grown very rapidly the last couple of years. It has posted like 7 8% growth the last couple of years. Now, to what extent that's been distributed is another question, but it, ha- it has uh, been growing um, uh, swiftly. It's just not the same size as India's by, by a long shot. Um, but in terms of the second point, yes, he's not stopping in Islamabad, and I think that the Indians are probably delighted and the Pakistanis are, are uh, you know, wringing their hands. Um, this is part of what is called in South Asia expert parlance dehyphenating. The Indians have been very um, uh, concerned that the United States uh, would only think of India as hyphenated with Pakistan, and it wanted to dehyphenate that relationship. It's been very successful in doing that. But Obama has uh, said that he will be visiting, I believe, Pakistan next year. So um, Pakistan will get its day in the sun next year. Do you think that this week's U.S. elections will have an impact on how the talks with India's leaders go? 
I think, it, you know, India's leaders are certainly very well aware of the outcome of the elections. Um, there was a view, even when Obama was elected, that this Democratic administration would not perhaps be as uh, friendly to Indian strategic or economic interests as a Republican administration. There are members of the India's elite, both business elite and government elite, who um, are, are feel more comfortable with a conservative Republican administration because they don't get uh, called, you know, they don't get, have problems with outsourcing and they don't have problems with military issues. So um, there is that kind of skepticism. But frankly, Obama is not uh, going to do a thing to change the course of India-U.S. relations as it was set during the um, George W. Bush administrations. And he's really uh, following very much along in that path, and that will be very reassuring to the Indians. And I think, they'll, you know, the Indians are very pragmatic. They have a certain agenda of things they'd like to get out of this visit. The U.S. has a certain agenda as well, and there are there are points of commonality, and uh, both countries, I think, will work to to show some kind of positive outcome. Well, Larry Summers, the director of the White House Economic Council, has been talking about what he calls the Mumbai consensus uh, and highlighted India's development model as an alternative to Beijing's. So how does China fit into this whole equation? You know, is the 800-pound gorilla that's just north of India shares a uh, disputed, I might add, border uh, with India, and China is also the the elephant in the room in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Uh, you know, we have uh, the civil nuclear agreement uh, that was signed into law right uh, at the end of the uh, Bush administration with India. We do not have a civil nuclear agreement with Pakistan, but China has one. Uh, China is uh, very uh, heavily investing in Afghanistan. Uh, especially in terms of exploiting uh, the fabulous mineral resources of that country. And, um, and it's very interesting. In fact, there's a Reuters headline from a couple of days ago that Germany, which is one of the biggest NATO contributors, and you know, NATO is, an, is, is our big partner in Afghanistan, has called for a bigger China role in Afghanistan, something that the Indians could only have, have winced at. <laughs> So they're actually conflicting agendas about about um, even within the, the NATO coalition about what role China should should or could play there. Um, but uh, China's there, and uh, and India is going to do everything it can to maintain an important role in Afghanistan. Mira Kamdar is a senior fellow at the World Policy Institute and associate fellow at the Asia Society. Thank you so much for being with us on today's second underreported segment. You're welcome. The Federal Reserve announced yesterday that it would buy $600 billion in Treasury bonds in an effort to help boost the economy. Joining me now to look at the timing of yesterday's announcement and what the Fed hopes to achieve with this move is Ryan Avent. Avent, I'm sorry, online economics editor for The Economist. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to our show for today's Backstory segment. Hello. Hello. Good to be back. This move wasn't unexpected, but why were some investors surprised that the Federal Reserve Chair Ben Bernanke announced the move yesterday? Um, well, I, you know, I think, as you say, this move wasn't unexpected. Uh, since late August, when he uh, gave a speech at a Federal Reserve conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, uh, 
at which he mentioned that the inflation rate is too low, which is an unusual thing for a central banker uh, to, to worry about or complain about. Uh, since that time, there's been the expectation that the Fed might get uh, back involved in providing additional monetary policy support to the economy. Uh, I, you know, I think there was some question as to when he, um, the, the announcement would actually come. Uh, there was some thought that he might do it uh, in September, but I also think that uh, Mr. Bernanke was wary of getting involved uh, in the economy too much right before the election. Because it could have become uh, an economic hot potato. It could. An election one, a political one. Absolutely. In today's uh, Washington Post, he wrote an op-ed piece, uh, and he said that he is concerned about low inflation rates and even deflation as being possible threats to the economy. So how does buying all these Treasury securities address those concerns? Well, it does it in a couple of different ways. Um, one of the things that the, the Fed is doing now, or the main thing it's doing now, is basically uh, printing money in a way, adding money to its account and using that to buy government securities, government debt. Uh, and so that adds to bank balance sheets and gives them more money. Now, that doesn't put that money into the economy unless the banks decide to lend it out. Uh, but the idea is that uh, as interest rates come down, the banks will feel uh, uh, begin to look for other ways to put money in the economy to get better returns. Um, it works in other ways as well, though. It can it can do it by changing uh, expectations. People listen to the Fed and, and hear that it's serious about raising inflation, uh, and so they begin to think that inflation will be occurring, and they begin to ask for price in, uh, uh, for wage increases, and, and shop owners raise prices, and and it works in that way as well. Well, the first time the Fed used this approach was when it injected $1.5 trillion into the economy at the height of the 2008-2009 financial crisis. What was the result of that? It's a little bit hard to know exactly. I mean, you can't go back, obviously, and run this experiment 100 times and see what the, uh, the result is. But I think there's general agreement among economists uh, that by doing that, um, the Fed did a couple of key things. Uh, one thing that it did was provide liquidity to markets at a time when, uh, when markets desperately needed it. Uh, and I also think that it, it, it changed uh, expectations at a time when the, the global economy was really in a rough spot uh, and prevented sort of the downward spiral that we saw uh, in the early 1930s. Um, I don't think it's going too far to say that the actions that the Fed took, as well as uh, other central banks, like the European Central Bank and the Bank of England, uh, really went a long way toward heading off what might have been a much worse global downturn. Is there a risk that this move could overdo it and create too much inflation? I mean... You know, there's always a risk, and uh, I, I'm sure that uh, that's one of the reasons it took uh, the Federal Reserve this long to, to come to the decision to, to get back involved in, in providing new easing. Uh, at the same time, I think the Fed feels pretty confident that uh, with unemployment as high as it is, uh, with, you know, the capacity utilization and factories uh, not running at the pace that we're accustomed to see them running, that there's just a lot of slack in the economy. Uh, and it's really difficult to boost the inflation rate um, when there's that much slack. There's just, uh, uh, there's just uh, you know, no pressure on firms to increase wages. Uh, and so I think that they're, they're feeling confident that they, they can take these steps and boost the economy without generating a lot of inflation. I think they also have some confidence that they have the tools available to tamp down inflation if it begins to get out of hand. And Bernanke also wrote in his op-ed piece that this move has the ability to help lower unemployment. How does the Fed hope that this will make employers more likely to start hiring again? Well, one of the, the ways it works is through interest rates. Uh, as as uh, banks have um, additional 
reserves. They are more anxious to lend it out, or the hope is that they'll be more anxious to lend it out to firms that uh, could then expand. Uh, I think one thing that, that the people may be more interested in hearing about is the, the effect it will have on the dollar. And as the dollar declines against other currencies, that will make American goods more attractive in foreign markets. Um, so that should boost American exports. And obviously, as, as production here gears up uh, to make goods to export, uh, firms will look at hiring more people and making more investments in that way. Well, the Bank of Japan did something similar a decade ago. Was that a success? Well, it sort of depends on who you ask. I think um, people interpret that that episode of quantitative easing in, in various ways, and uh, it certainly seems that when the Fed made up, or sorry, when the Bank of Japan made up its mind to stop deflation, uh, that it was successful in doing that. It was successful in moving from a negative inflation rate back up to zero. Uh, what they didn't do is get to a point where they had a positive inflation rate again and the economy was growing strongly. And I think there's some question as to whether that's because the Bank of Japan ran out of bullets or if because the Bank of Japan decided that they had done enough and didn't want to do any more. So there's there's some debate, but I think that they did have success in, in stopping deflation. Well, you mentioned the, the phrase quantitative case uh, easing. Bernanke didn't use it in his op-ed piece. But, uh, and I'm assuming it's because either that's another political hot potato, but does it weaken the value of China's investment in the U.S.'s economy? Well, I I think that it, it sort of it does and it doesn't. Um, I mean, one thing that China is concerned about uh, is is a falling dollar for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that um, China likes to have a weak, uh, sorry, a strong dollar because that boosts their position in selling goods to us. The other thing is that they own quite a few uh, Treasury securities themselves, uh, and so if the dollar weakens. Um, then those, the securities that they're sitting on lose value. So I think that, that China is wary of this move. At the same time, uh, it's not really in anyone's interest to have a weak American economy. Uh, and I think the Chinese leaders appreciate that um, if the Fed actions succeed in sort of putting the American recovery on a stronger footing, that they may ultimately benefit as well. Well, markets around the world have reacted positively to the decision, but policymakers in developing countries have criticized the move. How does uh, the policy affect their markets? Well, I think one thing they're concerned about is um, sort of uh, the way all this fits together with uh, with currency movements and capital flows. As the Fed d- takes this action and it brings down the dollar, um, that's going to send a lot of money looking for places to get better returns, which is something that we generally want to see. But it, it means that smaller countries may see uh, large capital inflows and they may have uh, uh, sharply, sharp increases in their exchange rate. And the, um, the takeaway, the upside, upshot to all that is that it may cause their economies to overheat and to, to, to start developing the kind of nasty bubbles that the U.S. saw uh, earlier in this decade and which Asian economies saw Ryan, in the I have 1990s. to leave it there. I'm okay. sorry. Ryan Avent, online economics editor for The Economist. Thank you so much for being part of uh, today's backstory look at the Fed's balance sheet. Thanks for having me, Leonard.